The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And when we look historically, we see that those national security interests, courts have been very deferential to national security interests in applying Fourth Amendment analysis. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 20th, 2021. On January 6th, a mob of pro-Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol during the certification of the Electoral College vote. As lawmakers were being evacuated by Capitol Police, Ashley Babbitt, a 35-year-old Air Force veteran, tried to climb through a shattered window in a barricaded door. Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd shot Babbitt as she was climbing through the window, and Babbitt died later that day. In the polarized debate over January 6th, the death of Ashley Babbitt has become a focal point and one of unusual political valence. Many on the right view her as a martyred hero and the police officer that shot her as an example of excessive force. And those on the left, who have traditionally been outspoken about police killings, have largely stayed quiet. To the extent they've commented, it's been to emphasize the unique circumstances of the Capitol insurrection as justification for the use of lethal force. The Department of Justice, having reviewed the incident, determined that there was insufficient evidence to charge Officer Byrd with violating Babbitt's civil rights, although DOJ did not conclude, one way or the other, whether the shooting was justified under the Fourth Amendment. To help me work through the legal issues around the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, I spoke with Seth Stoughton, Associate Professor of Law at the University of South Carolina and the co-author of a recent lawfare post on the shooting. Stoughton is a nationally recognized expert on police use of force. A former police officer himself, he was a key witness for the murder prosecution of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd. I spoke with Stoughton about the murky factual record surrounding the Babbitt shooting, the complex constitutional and statutory issues it raises, and what its political effects say about the broader prospects for police reform. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 20th. Seth Stoughton on the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. So, Seth, it's been more than nine months now since the Capitol riot. And just to make sure that we're all on the same page factually, can you give a brief overview of who Ashley Babbitt was, what she was doing at the Capitol that day, and the events that led to her death? Sure. So by way of brief overview, Ashley Babbitt was one of the members of the mob that breached the Capitol building on January 6th. And she is relevant to our discussion because she was climbing through a broken window in a door to the speaker's lobby when she was shot by a Capitol Police officer. And died as a result. So 
After doing a review, uh, the Department of Justice declined to prosecute uh, Officer Michael Byrd, who was the police officer that, that shot Babbitt. They declined to prosecute him for the shooting, stating that there was, quote, insufficient evidence to support a criminal prosecution. But as DOJ noted, and, and we'll get into this later in the conversation, the prosecution would have been for a willful violation of Babbitt's constitutional rights, that is, the Fourth Amendment. And in the piece that you and your co-authors wrote for Lawfare, you distinguish between the Fourth Amendment issue on the one hand and the criminal law issue uh, on the other hand. So what is the difference between these two questions and why is it important to keep this distinction in mind, in your opinion, in our analysis of the, the Babbitt shooting? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to answer generally before I answer specifically. The general answer is that we have to remember that as we're applying legal standards to officer actions, including police shootings, there are often multiple different legal standards that apply. In a normal case, we might be talking about federal law, meaning both constitutional law and federal criminal law, as well as state law, and that includes both state criminal law and state civil law. And there may be additional issues like administrative principles, whether the officer violated an agency's policies or procedures or general order, whether an officer acted contrary to agency training and the like. These are all different questions. So at least in theory, an officer could violate the Fourth Amendment, but not commit a federal crime or violate the Fourth Amendment and not commit a state crime, or not violate the Fourth Amendment. Their actions might be consistent with the Fourth Amendment, and yet the officer might still be committing a crime as a matter of state law, or might still be violating agency policy. So part of the reason why I think it's very important to distinguish these questions is because the answers are potentially different. This case adds an additional wrinkle, though, and that wrinkle is the application of federal law and particularly the statute that DOJ focused on and the statute that they often focus on in police cases is predicated on a Fourth Amendment violation. So if you don't have a Fourth Amendment violation, then you can't have a willful deprivation of constitutional rights because there simply are no constitutional rights. So when we're analyzing the particular statute, 18 U.S.C. 242, what we're looking to see first is, was there a Fourth Amendment violation? Second, if there was, that satisfies one of the elements of 242. Are the other elements satisfied, particularly the mens rea element, right, the mental intent element? And then we can get on to the practical question, even assuming for purposes of analysis that we do have a Fourth Amendment violation and that it's at least plausible to establish a violation of the elements of the statute, can a prosecutor actually prove it in good faith? Do we have the evidence that we need to get to guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Those are all different pieces of a question or maybe different questions that you assemble to get to the ultimate question. So let's then divide our conversation into some chunks so we can get a bit more organized. So let's talk about the Fourth Amendment for a bit, and then we can move on to the to the federal criminal statute side of it. So uh, as you point out, at least for this criminal statute that DOJ was focusing on, and also I think generally 
because the public is and should be interested in whether or not its law enforcement is acting in conformity with the Fourth Amendment. This question of whether or not Officer Byrd's shooting of Babbitt comports with the Fourth Amendment looms large. And I think what is particularly interesting and and perhaps in some corners will be provocative in reading uh, your and your co-author's analysis is that you argue that there that it's it's not clear wh- whether the shooting of Babbitt was justified under the Fourth Amendment, or at the very least that there are some some serious questions about that. So can you go through what the main Fourth Amendment standards are and why you think in this case there are at least questions about the constitutionality of the shooting? So let's start with the Fourth Amendment standards, and let's actually start, if you don't mind, with why we're applying the Fourth Amendment at all. After all, the text of the Fourth Amendment doesn't say anything about police uses of force, right? The Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. And there are some other parts to it, like the warrant clause that we don't need to get into. But at its core, what we're talking about is unreasonable searches and seizures. Well, we don't have any searches here, so we can ignore the very complicated body of doctrine that defines Fourth Amendment searches. A seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes happens in one of two circumstances, or when either of two tests are satisfied. One is when a government agent, like a police officer, makes physical contact with someone with the intent to deprive of them of their freedom of movement. Uh, an officer who grabs someone, for example, to stop them from going somewhere. That's clearly applicable to most uses of force, at least uses of force that connect with their intended targets. It does raise a whole bunch of questions that I've talked about in some of my articles about what else might or might not be a use of force and a seizure, right? The, the interstices between those two terms. But for our purposes, if there's physical contact, including physical contact at range, like with a bullet, uh, with the intent to stop someone from doing something, stop someone from moving in a particular direction, or stop someone from leaving, then we have a use of force that counts as a seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes. The other rule, of course, although not applicable here, is when officers uh, display a show of authority that's intended to result in someone's restriction of, the, of their freedom of movement, and the person submits to that show of authority in circumstances where a reasonable person would not feel free to leave. That second test can be complicated, and luckily we can totally ignore it because we didn't have any submission to shows of police authority here. We had, in fact, quite the opposite. So we're asking the Fourth Amendment question because there is a seizure. And the Fourth Amendment, of course, regulates seizures. So what needs to be true of a seizure? In order to comply with the Fourth Amendment, it needs to be reasonable. We know that because the Fourth Amendment itself says no unreasonable searches or seizures. But what does that mean in the use of force context? The court started answering that question in 1985 with a case called Tennessee v. Garner, where it applied the Fourth Amendment to a deadly force incident. In that case, A young man was fleeing out of a home that was suspected to have been burglarized. He was a burglary suspect, and the officer saw him fleeing, recognized that he was probably unarmed, and uh, shot him in the back of the head to keep him from fleeing the scene. The Supreme Court said that was a use of deadly force that amounted to a seizure, and it crafted this rule for at least the use of deadly force under the Fourth Amendment. It said that the use of deadly force is unconstitutional unless officers have probable cause to believe that the individual 
presents an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. There's obviously a lot more that we could talk about with Tennessee v. Garner, but that's the that's the core probable cause that the individual presents an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. In 1989, the Supreme Court decided what is probably the most influential, actually strike that, there is no probably, what is definitely the most influential Fourth Amendment use of force case, and that's Graham v. Connor. In Graham v. Connor, the Supreme Court majority picked up on something that the dissent in Tennessee v. Garner had laid out, which is this more freewheeling concept of objective reasonableness and a great deal of deference to police decisions when they make, well, when they make a use of force decision. So in uh, Graham v. Connor, the Supreme Court first held that it was the Fourth Amendment that applied to all excessive force claims in the policing context, as opposed to due process. And second, that the way to answer the constitutional question is to ask whether a use of force was objectively reasonable. And that's kind of a nebulous standard. If if I was to ask you, Alan, if you wanted to play a game and you said, sure, and I said, okay, well, the rules are just be objectively reasonable. That wouldn't give you a whole lot of guidance into what that game was like. Well, the Supreme Court gave us a little bit more than just saying objectively reasonable and stopping. The court said that there are specific factors that we have to consider when determining whether a use of force is objectively reasonable, because the goal is to balance the individual's interest in not having force used against them with the police interest or the governmental interest in using force. So we look at what have become known as the Graham factors. We look at the severity of the underlying crime. We look at whether the individual was actively resisting or attempting to evade arrest by flight. And we look at whether the individual presented an imminent threat to the officer or others. And we look at all of those questions through a very deferential lens. We adopt the perspective, not of the after the fact bystander, who is aware of, well, everything that happened. But instead, we look at the situation through the eyes of the reasonable officer on the scene. And that means that we have to take into account things like perceptual and cognitive limitations that may be the result of stress. As the Supreme Court put it, I'm sure I'm going to botch the quotation, the determination of reasonableness needs to take into account that officers make use of force decisions, what can be split second decisions in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. That wasn't an exact quotation. I'll call that one a paraphrase. So in the aftermath of Graham v. Connor, we kind of had two constitutional rules, one that applied to deadly force, that's Tennessee v. Garner, and one that applied to what we'll call less lethal uses of force, uses of force that are not substantially likely to cause death or great bodily harm. That would be the Graham v. Connor objective reasonableness rule. And that lasted right up until Scott v. Harris, where the Supreme Court managed to muddy the waters by saying that Tennessee v. Garner, the 1985 case, was really just an application of Graham v. Connor's 1989 objective reasonableness determination. Scott v. Harris was a pursuit case, 
and uh, one vehicle, the police vehicle, rammed a fleeing vehicle. And the fleeing driver uh, was rendered quadriplegic and sued, saying this was a use of deadly force in circumstances that did not justify it because I did not present an imminent threat of death and great bodily harm. And the Supreme Court said, well, that's not really the question. The question is whether the use of force is reasonable. And when someone presents an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm, the use of deadly force can be reasonable, but maybe it suggested possibly there are other situations as well. Uh, one of the more interesting things for me as a, as a scholar in this area is that a lot of the courts in the aftermath of Scott v. Harris have not applied Scott v. Harris outside of the vehicle pursuit context. In fact, even the Supreme Court has tended to stick with Graham v. Connor and Tennessee v. Garner as they were understood prior to Scott v. Harris, rather than just collapse them all together into a more amorphous objective reasonableness assessment. So that's a very long explanation for why we're applying the Fourth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment rules effectively because this is a use of deadly force, the way we would tend to look at it is by asking, is there an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm? So b- before we then apply that to the Babbitt case particularly, I want to ask you one follow-up about this issue of objective reasonableness. Because on the one hand, we're asking objective reasonableness. On the other hand, we're asking this from the perspective of the police officer involved in the use of deadly force. So can under the Fourth Amendment, you have a situation in which the police officer acts unreasonably according to the information that they were aware of at the time, but a bystander would have known that the situation is actually much more dangerous than even the police officer knew at the time. So just to kind of give a concrete example, because the hypothetical is a little weird here. The police officer sees someone entering a building, doesn't have any reason to think that they have a weapon, but is decides to take a shot out of you know an abundance of caution or whatever, right? Which would might be objectively unreasonable. But in the after in the after action report, it's actually clear that this person was carrying dangerous weapons, but the police officer wouldn't have realized that. So you have a situation in which the objective reasonableness test, which is clearly designed to be fairly deferential to police officers, seems like it could almost be less deferential than the bystander test. Does that ever happen? Or, or do courts find a way of sort of always finding in favor of the police officer? Uh, that's a great question. It does happen in a kind of a weird way, uh, as you suggested. So this concept of the reasonable officer on the scene it's not just the bystander. It's really, if we took the actual officer on the scene out and we swapped in the reasonable officer on the scene, what would the reasonable officer have seen from the perspective of the actual officer on the scene? And part of what makes this really complicated is we need to ask, well, what did the actual officer see? Not just the information that was available to them, but what were their contemporaneous perceptions? This mix of subjective, what did the officer see and experience with the objective, what would the reasonable officer have seen and experienced has led some scholars to use this phrase that I rather like, subjective objectivity. I want to apologize to our listeners for that term. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I... I, I, yeah, I do too, actually. It's, um, I, I like the phrase because it 
demonstrates just how mind-bogglingly complicated identifying the right framework is in these Fourth Amendment cases. I can just imagine my criminal procedure class groaning when I tell them to apply the subjective, objective, subjective, objective test on the exam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, just, just adopt subjective objectivity. That's all, right? So what does this mean? Well, it means, it, what, let's take the practical example. What does subjective objectivity mean? It means we don't just take the actual officer's subjective perceptions at face value. We take their subjective perceptions and we ask, would a reasonable officer have shared those subjective perceptions? If so, then we will count them. And if not, then we won't. And here's, here's, a, here's a good example, I think. There was a case involving a, a female officer who ended up using force on a guy who was standing on a sidewalk with, as I recall, a golf club. Uh, and he was using the golf club essentially as a, as a walking stick, right? Uh, apparently that was, that was this guy's thing. He, he walked around with a golf club as the walking stick. And the dash camera from the interaction shows that the officer was having a conversation with the guy and he was standing there leaning on the golf club. That's it. It was, it was down by his side. And in the use of force documentation, the officer said that he had raised the golf club threateningly at her. Uh, I forget if she said that he had swung it at her, but it was certainly the implication was uh, that, that, that he was aggressive with this weapon. And that's why she had used force. Now, let's abstract away. Let's do a law professory thing. Let's abstract away from the idea that she's just lying about this, right? Let us take for granted that she is telling the truth as she sees it, that she is describing her contemporaneous perceptions in good faith. That is, it is her subjective reality. Well, when you look at the dash camera, you can clearly see that that's nonsense. So even though it's what she may have seen subjectively, objectively speaking, a reasonable officer on the scene would not have shared that perspective. So if we adopt this idea of subjective objectivity, it has limits where we aren't just going to accept at face value an officer's subjective perceptions, but we are going to start with an officer's subjective perceptions and then weigh them against what a reasonable officer in the situation would have been exposed to. So now to actually answer your question, does this ever uh, play out to an officer's detriment? It does. And the way that it does is most often with an individual's background. So one of the factors to take into consideration in this totality of the circumstances about whether an officer made an appropriate or a reasonable use of force decision is uh, how dangerous is the person that they're dealing with. And one of the factors that we might use for that is what is their criminal history? Have they killed people or have they only ever maybe been a jaywalker or maybe nothing, right? No criminal history at all. If an officer is interacting with someone and is unaware of that person's criminal history, that criminal history is something that should not factor into a court's analysis of whether the officer's decision under the circumstances was reasonable or not. That information was not available to a reasonable officer on the scene. Now, sometimes courts get this wrong and they talk about someone's criminal history anyway, but I have seen a number of cases that give me some hope that courts are applying the 
the framework of objective reasonableness in the right way by looking only at the information that was available to a reasonable officer on the scene. And sometimes you'll see uh, court decisions that say, while X is true, while this person had X criminal history, this information was not available to the officer at the time and therefore cannot be the basis of that decision. So if you have a, a hypothetical like you described, where the officer uses deadly force and under the situation as it was known to the officer, that's unreasonable. But the bystander behind the suspect would have seen that the suspect had his hand on a gun and was drawing it at the time, right? For Fourth Amendment purposes, that information was not available to the officer, and therefore their actions were objectively unreasonable based on the information available to them, even though if we analyze this, this incident with what the court refers to as the 2020 vision of hindsight, we would say it's actually appropriate. The, the reason I wanted to get your thoughts on this is because in my understanding of both the events and your argument about it, something like this does appear to have happened somewhat in this case. So given what we know about January 6th, given what we know about the ultimate violence of the event, of who descended on the Capitol, of the chance of death to various lawmakers, to where the lawmakers were, I mean, to the fact that this was not just a protest gone wild, this was in many ways a real attack on the Capitol. I think many of us, uh, I don't want to speak for the audience here, but I in part, you know, I'll take myself. It's very intuitive for me to think that Officer Byrd's actions were reasonable, given what I now know about January 6th. But in your careful analysis, and I'd like to get into it a little bit now, you you cast doubt on that based on what Officer Byrd would have known at the time that he fired his weapon and and shot Babbitt. Um, so is, is that a fair characterization of kind of the, your argument? And, and why in particular do you think that, at least according to some of the factors that the court tells us to use, I mean, it was not reasonable for Byrd to view Babbitt as presenting uh, the sort of threat that would justify a potentially lethal use of force? Yeah, this really gets at the at the complications in this in this case. And the biggest complication is that I don't have anything resembling a comprehensive report of the incident to refer to. Um, DOJ and Capitol Police have not released anything like that. It's not clear to me whether they will or if they uh, are, how much of it's going to be available to the public and how much is going to be redacted in some way. In order to assess what the reasonable officer on the scene would have been aware of and to apply this subjective objectivity framework, we need to know what Lieutenant Byrd was aware of. There's a lot of reporting now that gives me a bunch of information, a bunch of very detailed information that I think it's fair to say was not available in anywhere near the level of detail or coherence to Lieutenant Byrd or more pertinently to a reasonable officer in his position at the time. So we know, for example, from his uh, statement, his, his uh, interview with NBC, that he described being informed that shots had been fired uh, into the House floor. And we know after the fact that, that that never happened. But because we're looking at this subjective objectivity, totality of the circumstances as they would appear to a reasonable officer on the scene, 
the best information available to him is that shots had been fired onto the House floor. That's one example of attributing information to the officer that's actually not true, but certainly counts in the totality of the circumstances. Unfortunately, there's a lot of information now that we have that I just don't have a sufficient basis to assess whether he was aware of it or whether a reasonable officer in his position could have been aware of it. And the best example of this, I think, is the uh, two or three officers that were just outside the door to the speaker's lobby immediately prior to the shooting. If you look at the video, there are, I think, two uniformed and maybe one plainclothes officer just outside the door to the speaker's lobby. And they're interacting with the crowd. The crowd's yelling at them and cajoling them. And the officers are just standing in front of the door. And every once in a while, someone hits the door with something around the edges of the officers. No one is violently attacking the officers, though. They're telling the officers... You know, we had your back during the uh, what I think is a fair reference to the, the George Floyd or the police reform protests. And Lieutenant Byrd is on the other side of that door. What he said in his NBC interview is I couldn't see what was going on on the far side. And one of the big questions that I have is, well, what would a reasonable officer in that situation have seen or have known about what was going on on the other side of that door? The answer is potentially nothing. Potentially, there was just no way for an officer in of, uh, Lieutenant Byrd's position to have good insight into what was going on, or potentially everything if there was radio communications and updates, or somewhere in between that nothing to everything, right? What we know from the, the video is that the officers who were standing in front of the speaker's lobby door uh, moved out of the way at around the same time that some more heavily equipped officers uh, came around the corner to the back of where the mob was. And the uh, the officers who were there initially left their positions in front of the door and sort of moved around the mob closer to where the, the well-equipped officers were, right? The tactical officers were. So we know that because we've, we saw it on the video. But again, we have to go back to what Lieutenant Byrd or a reasonable officer in his position would have thought. On the one hand, it's possible that he or a reasonable officer in his position would have known that the officers had been, in some sense, extracted from that location. On the other hand, it's possible that a reasonable officer in the position might have thought that the officers in front of the door had been overwhelmed by the crowd who then started really beating on the door with much more frequency and severity than they had when the officers were there. Or it's possible that a reasonable officer in the position wouldn't have known that the officers were there in the first place. Without knowing which one of those things is true or closest to the truth, it makes it very, very difficult to assess, well, what the reasonable officer in that situation could have concluded about what was happening on the other side of that door. So the, the big complication here is there's just a tremendous amount of information that I don't have that I would need to have in order to feel comfortable assessing whether a reasonable officer in Lieutenant Byrd's position would have perceived Ashley Babbitt as presenting an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. So then let me ask you the question in, in a different way, because I think what your description very, very usefully gets at is that in evaluating these use of force questions under the Fourth Amendment, it's often not a case that we're deciding between the officer clearly was justified in doing this, 
or the officer clearly had enough information to justify use of force, or the officer clearly had enough information such that use of force was clearly not justified. But often we have a situation in which there's some information the officer had. We're not entirely sure what it is. The officer might not entirely be sure what it is. It might not be that much generally speaking. And so you're in this kind of, I don't necessarily want to use a military analogy here, but let's call it a kind of fog of war situation. And and so then you need to say, okay, well, given that probably most of our most difficult situations will occur in this zone of ambiguity um, or this zone of low information, which way does the burden shift, right? So in a situation like this, given, honestly, who knows what Officer Bird knew and given the kind of heightened situation, what he, he was processing inside his head, he did have to make a choice one way or the other. And so the question is under the Fourth Amendment, you know, does the tie go in favor of the officer's use of force or against? As a theoretical and conceptual matter, you might think that the tie would go against the officer, that the tie would go in favor of an individual's civil rights. I think that would be a perfectly reasonable prediction, uh, and it's not the case. Because of the heavy deference that courts pay to officers making use of force decisions, as has been directed by the Supreme Court, ties go to the officer. When there are ambiguous situations, we generally conclude, that is, courts generally conclude that the officer's assessments and conclusions are more likely to be reasonable than than not. Now, I'm going to complicate this just a little bit, actually. There are two different dimensions of deference that we should pay attention to. One is the information available to the officer or to the reasonable officer on the scene and the conclusions that they would have drawn from that. And the other is their choice about how to respond, given the information available to them, including its inherent ambiguities. Because the Supreme Court has directed Fourth Amendment review to be deferential to officers, generally those ties on both of those dimensions go to the officer. If we aren't sure what a reasonable officer in this situation would have perceived, courts generally err on the side of the interpretation of events that favors the officer. And when it comes to assessing an officer's response to that situation, to reviewing the actual use of force decisions, courts, again, usually defer to the officer. Don't think about the reasonableness of an officer's use of force decisions as existing as a dichotomy, as a reasonable or unreasonable. Instead, think about it on a spectrum. And somewhere on that spectrum, there is a point at which force is clearly unreasonable. And at another end of the spectrum, there's a point at which the use of force is clearly reasonable. But between those two points, it's a little bit of a gray area. And within that gray area, we generally have a thumb on the scales favoring the officer. I think there are lots of philosophical and doctrinal reasons to be skeptical that putting a thumb on the scale on the side of the officer is appropriate. Nevertheless, that's the case law we have. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, 
showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. How does the fact that this took place at the Capitol with so many high-level government officials present during the important counting of the electoral votes, how does that or should that change the Fourth Amendment analysis? Might that go to the question of whether this was reasonable for Byrd to be sort of extra cautious or perhaps, to put it a different way, might that be another reason for the tiebreaker, if there is one, to go to Byrd in this situation? Yeah, this is one of the points that my co-authors and I tried to tried to make in uh, in the article. The Fourth Amendment is situationally specific, or or maybe it's it's the the context in which it's being applied is relevant to the determination of how it's applied, at least in some cases. At a very basic level the rules that govern when officers can search a car and when officers can search a house are different because the Supreme Court has said that there are different interests, different individual interests between a car and a house. You have a heightened interest in privacy in your home and a reduced interest in privacy in your car. Well, it's also true that the nature of the government interest the other side of that reasonableness equation, when we're balancing individual interests against government interests, the government interest is contextually dependent. We know that in some situations, like in schools, there are different government interests or government interests that apply differently in Fourth Amendment analysis. To take an extreme example, there are no Fourth Amendment rights to privacy in a correctional setting, in prison. Supreme Court has said the government interest in prison management and discipline is so high that it always outweighs any Fourth Amendment interest. Effectively, there is no Fourth Amendment interest there at all, right? So as we're thinking about how the Fourth Amendment applies to this insurrective invasion. I'm not sure if insurrective is a word, but I think it's, you know, an adjective that applies here. This this insurrective invasion of the Capitol building. I think one of the big confusing factors is is this different? And the short version is we don't really know. It's never happened before. And 
before I get any mean emails from historians, yes, I'm aware that the British invaded the Capitol building in like 1814 or something like that. But that's pretty different than an insurrectionist mob invading the Capitol building. Let's set the his that particular history aside. We know that the Fourth Amendment and the way that it applies depends a lot on the circumstances. And I think there are at least some plausible arguments that the Fourth Amendment is going to apply differently to this particular case, not because it was a government building specifically, but because it was the U.S. Capitol and there were lawmakers up to and including the vice president of the United States who were potentially imperiled at the time of the action in question. If one of those individuals is, for example, kidnapped, taken away forcefully from that scene, and they have sat in oversight of US intelligence operations or US military operations, they might have really important information that the government has a very strong interest in not sharing with insurrectionist kidnappers. In other words, what I'm suggesting is the potential for there to be not just normal government law enforcement interests at play, but also the potential for national security interests to affect the Fourth Amendment analysis. And when we look historically, we see that those national security interests, courts have been very deferential to national security interests in applying Fourth Amendment analysis. So we've gotten pretty into the legal weeds, which is great. This is lawfare after all. But I do want to try to sum up just kind of where we are, because I also want to move to some of the kind of broader policy issues here. So the Fourth Amendment sets out these factors for when use of force is reasonable. A lot of it is very situational. A lot of it depends on what the officer knew or perceived at the time and whether those actions would have been reasonable or not. And there are good arguments to think that Bird acted reasonably, especially if you take the special context of the Capitol building into account. But at the same time, there are additional facts that might cast doubt on that, in particular about whether or not at the time Bird had good reasons to think that Babbitt herself presented an imminent threat and whether she was armed uh, and, and so on and, and, and so forth. And, and again, for readers who want to know more, I really you know, highly recommend they, they read the, the, the post that, that, that you and your, your co-authors wrote. Now, that's the Fourth Amendment part of the analysis. Then there's also the federal law here at, at issue. And I don't want to go too much into that because I think we've actually touched on a lot of the relevant questions there. The, the point here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the willfulness requirement under federal law for a prosecution for violating civil rights, right? And that was the, the main statute DOJ was looking at, kind of gets at a lot of what we were talking about in terms of what do you do if there's a tiebreaker? What do you do if there's a, a constitutional violation, but it might have been kind of on the margins or we're uncertain? The, kind of the point of how the federal law has been written and interpreted is that in this case, ties go to the federal law official. And so that presumably is the reason why DOJ concluded the way it did, which was not affirmatively that Lieutenant Byrd's actions were constitutional, right? That's not actually the conclusion DOJ came to, right? It didn't make an opinion on that. And I think that's what, at least among some conservative commentators, kind of raised the eyebrows, right? That DOJ didn't affirmatively say that what he did was valid under the Fourth Amendment. But their point was, look, we've been asked whether we can bring a prosecution and 
even if he did violate the Fourth Amendment, did not reach a, a willfulness. So two questions there. One, did I get that right? And, and two, if I did, does that still present other avenues for liability for Officer Byrd? So for example, right, you know, could Babbitt's family, Babbitt's estate, could they bring a civil lawsuit for violation of Babbitt's Fourth Amendment rights? And you know, is there a situation where, where you know, is it possible? You know, could, could we foresee a situation in which some, you know, a year from now or something like that, a court holds that um, uh, not for criminal law purposes, but for civil liability purposes, Byrd violated Babbitt's Fourth Amendment rights? The short answer is yes, I think that is possible. Whether or not that will happen, I think, uh, we, who knows? There are all kinds of all kinds of questions there, including the question, the factual questions that we were talking about earlier. So 18 U.S.C. Section 242 is the criminal deprivation of civil rights uh, statute. And you're absolutely right. The DOJ memo did not say that Lieutenant Byrd had acted consistently with the Fourth Amendment. It, it was silent as to any analysis about whether he violated or did not violate the Fourth Amendment. What it said was that prosecutors could not establish this willfulness element. In the context of Section 242, which criminalizes willful deprivation of constitutional or federal rights, the Supreme Court has interpreted this willfulness requirement to be a specific intent requirement. And we can go all the way back to first-year criminal law, right? Specific intent is a very high bar. It doesn't necessarily require someone to have the specific intent to cause a particular result, although it can, as in a premeditated murder statute. In the case of this criminal civil rights deprivation statute, it means that the officer has to act with the knowledge and wicked intent that their actions are unconstitutional. They have to not be thinking about the Constitution per se, but they have to mean to do this thing to deprive someone of their constitutional rights. Unfortunately, exactly what it is they need to do is really difficult to define precisely, but we do know mistakes acting out of fear or confusion or even negligence or recklessness are not going to cut it. It needs to be more than that. It needs to be an action taken in bad faith. And when I read the DOJ press release, the way that I read that is the DOJ did not believe that it can establish beyond a reasonable doubt that Lieutenant Byrd acted in bad faith. And looking at the publicly available information about the shooting, I don't think that's an assailable conclusion. I think that conclusion is very, very strong. Now, can there still be a Fourth Amendment violation? Yes. And does that mean that potentially, as information plays out, potentially Ashley Babbitt's family may be able to bring a civil suit and succeed? Yes, it does. So I want to finish our discussion by kind of abstracting a little bit from the, the, the legal details in, in this case and ask some broader questions. And first, I want to ask two questions of you about how your own, I think, unique background affects your perspective, if at all, on, on this case. So, so one, I think, really interesting feature of your bio, and this is unique uh, or, or 
relatively unique as or relatively rare among law professors that teach criminal procedure. You yourself were a police officer for several years. So so you approach these these issues with, I think, a, a firsthand understanding of the sorts of decisions that police officers have to make and the difficulties into which they have to make them and potentially also the, the pathologies of some police behavior. And, and I'm curious, has your experience as a police officer, you know, as you were following what was happening on January 6th or thinking about what's been going on since then, you know, has that affected how you have interpreted this either to be more critical or less critical or, or just kind of orthogonal to Lieutenant Byrd's actions? I think it's led me to look for and unfortunately to find all of the gaps in the information that's available. A great deal of what matters to this analysis is what did the officer know? What did the officer think? And in most cases, in most police shooting cases, that information is is provided. Agencies shovel that information out often because they want to protect the officers. And, you know, one of the problems that we've seen, like, for example, in the Walter Scott shooting here in South Carolina, is when the agency shovels information out about what happened or what the officer knew and turns out to not be the case. I'm more used to looking through this deluge of initial information and then finding things that are incorrect or wrong than I am something like the Ashley Babbitt case where we just don't have this information at all. I think the perspective of having having been an officer, and I, I was a I was an officer for about five years. I spent two of those, uh, all all of that is as a patrol officer, a uniform beat cop. Two of the years I was with a special response team that focused on crowd control and riot response. I'm very aware. I'm very cognizant of the level of confusion that can exist, even in relatively small crowd situations. I am loath to use military metaphors in the context of domestic policing because I think they're so different. But fog of war is one of those that definitely applies to both theaters. In some ways, that absolutely makes me more sympathetic because I'm aware in some sense of what an officer simply did not know and how how isolating that can be when when you were the officer on the street and you know what your backup's 30 seconds away but you don't know that for example i think in some ways it also makes me a little more critical or maybe makes my criticisms a little bit more informed because there are situations where even under the facts as given officers are capable of and should be making far better decisions than they actually are. So I, I think uh, I think that that sword sort of cuts both directions depending on on the facts of a, of any given incident. One of the big questions that I have about this case, which is not actually about the shooting itself, it's about a series of questions about the Capitol Police, is also because of my familiarity working inside a police organization. And I have this series of questions about intelligence gathering, planning, and implementation at the Capitol Police organizational level, which really doesn't reflect directly on the questions relating to Lieutenant Byrd's actions, 
but certainly relates to why Capitol Police officers were put into the situation that they were put by this combination of an aggressive insurrectionalist crowd and their own agency's posture leading up to the the ultimate invasion of the Capitol. So one follow-up for that. You mentioned that in, in many police use of force cases, the immediate response of the police department is, is, as you put it, to to shovel out information, right? Sometimes to provide a factual record, sometimes in a kind of CYA or deflective way. And yet we have not seen that actually in the Babbitt case, as you point out, right? It's been six months. This is maybe the highest profile crime committed in decades, uh, the Capitol insurrection. I mean, there's, suffice it to say, this is a big news story. And yet six months later, experts like you still have this long, long list of things that you don't know. Why do you think that is? Is is it just that for whatever reason, this information does not exist or the Capitol Police aren't putting it out? This this seems, seems unusual. Yeah, it is. I, I think it is. Now, it's not unusual for an investigation after a critical incident to take a while, but I don't even know if there is an investigation into the incident, or at least not one comprehensive investigation. Normally, you would expect your city or your county police department to say, we're doing an after-action review of our protest or riot response, or we are doing an internal investigation of this shooting, or we have asked an external agency to investigate the shooting. I haven't even seen that type of statement with regard to the capital invasion writ large or the Ashley Babbitt shooting specifically. So why not? I think some of it may be because we're talking about the Capitol Police and the Capitol Police are simply different than other police agencies. A police chief answers to a city manager or a mayor or a city council. A sheriff answers to the electorate. At most agencies, there are clear lines of political accountability. Capitol Police is a little different. Their community is Congress and, I suppose, their staffers, the folks who are in the Capitol building at any given time. Capitol Police Department is a very large, very well-funded, very quiet in the sense of public-facing police agency. So even if you would expect a very different response from an NYPD or a Chicago PD or something like that, we might just not see that from the Capitol Police because it's a very different context. Information like we might expect to see in that report might also, because of the unique nature of the Capitol, be well classified. And I mean classified in a, in a very broad sense, right? There might be national security implications to releasing the type of information that you would normally release in a shooting investigation or a, a riot response after action report. And I also think that right, wrong, or indifferent, politics plays a role here. This shooting and the incident more broadly, the, the insurrection at the Capitol, and I, I use that term with full advisement, I, I do absolutely consider this to have been a violent insurrectionalist, uh, uh, well, I'll just pause there, a violent insurrection at the Capitol building. The politics of it are a little weird, and it does not line up with the normal political 
rhetoric of police apologetics and police criticism. I think it's highly likely that all of those factors and maybe a couple of others play into why we haven't gotten much more information or at least the promise of more information about the Capitol. I think federal resources that are focusing on the Capitol are focusing on prosecuting the individuals who invaded the Capitol. So I also think there may be some resource constraints. Maybe the folks who would be doing this broad review are busy trying to identify all of the nitwits in the crowd who were using flagpoles to hit Capitol Police officers. So your point about the interesting politics of this is a nice segue into the how I want to close out our conversation, um, which is about the politics of this. So one notable feature of this is that the political valence is flipped from how police use of force cases usually play out. So in this case, Babbitt has become a kind of folk hero, almost kind of martyr type figure for the Trumpist right wing, which has vilified law enforcement at the Capitol, even though law enforcement's response was quite gentle relative to, for example, how police responded to Black Lives Matter protests or or just generally how police have often responded, right? And you know this better than most, right? Having been a witness for the prosecution in the Derek Chauvin trial of of George Floyd here in in Minneapolis earlier. Now, by, by contrast, the left, which has been, again, very passionate about police use of force reform, and it has sometimes, many cases, properly called out improper use of force, but in other cases has perhaps gotten a little bit ahead of itself and made some mistakes, actually, in criticizing certain police use of force uh, actions. In this case, the left has been remarkably quiet about the Babbitt shooting, um, really not wanting to get into this at all. And then, of course, and and this is um, something that hasn't been talked about, but I do think is probably playing some role. There's a kind of heightened racial element to this because, of course, Babbitt was white and uh, Officer Bird is black. Um, which probably adds as well to some of the kind of unusual political valence that that we see here. So my question for you is, you know, how do you interpret the politics of this shooting? And and two questions in particular. One is, is it safe to say, based on this kind of odd political valence, that a lot of people's views on police use of force reform are actually just downstream of their more general views of race, of partisanship, right? that police use of force reform is, is again, downstream of that. So that's sort of one question for you. And the other question is, does this create an opening for some progress on police use of force reform since now kind of each side can point to its own set of police uses of force that it wants to stop? Or does this just show that there's no possibility for reform because really a lot of the debate isn't actually about police use of force. It's really about these other structural polarization issues in American society and that police use of force is just yet another of these battlefields? Yeah, those are great questions and they're really important ones. I think working on policing issues generally has made me rather cynical about the strength of ideological principles. I have come to think that we all, as humans, would really like to believe that we're principled, but our principles are much more about in-grouping, are about uh, identity, than they are about actual 
principles that we apply consistently in all situations. In other words, when there is a conflict between our professed principles and our sense of identity, we relieve the cognitive dissonance there by finding reasons to not apply our principles in the way that they might otherwise apply. Uh, to, to use your language, which is much more eloquent, I think, uh, than mine, I think our ideological principles on policing are downstream of our sociological ideologies or political ideologies. And I think this is a very good example of that. And let me give you a specific comparison why. In the aftermath of the uh, Chauvin trial, I received what uh, I thought at the time was a startling amount of hate mail. Uh, but one, one particular um, piece is, is relevant here. Uh, a correspondent emailed me and said of Mr. Floyd, he was a career criminal who got what he deserved. I, I'm going to pause for just a second and just point out how how wildly inappropriate that that statement is, right? It fundamentally defines someone by their worst possible actions. And in addition to having some problems with factual accuracy, it just ethically is way off base. But what's interesting, if saddening, is... I see very similar comments. In fact, I believe after the Lawfare article, someone tweeted something to that effect about the story that Ashley Babbitt maybe was not a career criminal, but she was a treasonous insurrectionalist and she got what she deserved. The parallels between those statements, I think are really striking and really disappointing. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have principles. And I certainly do not mean to suggest to present myself in some uber-righteous way, right, and say that I am the only principled person. I am 100% sure. And if you want, I can pull my wife and kids into this conversation. They can probably back me up. I am as unprincipled as anyone else is. Uh, I, I have no doubt. Uh, so I don't mean to exempt myself from, from this description. But as an observation, I think when our politics and our principles are intention, what we see in this incident and what we've seen, I think, for example, throughout the Trump presidency with the shifting definition of conservatism is principles give way to politics. The, the, the second question, and I think we should end on, on, on this, um, though I'm sure we could talk about this for several more hours, is given that, given that everyone can, can point to their example of what they view as inappropriate use of force. Does that suggest that there is some room for police reform? Or because it is so politicized, does it suggest that this, like everything else in our society, will will die in the maw of partisanship? Yeah. I So despite being cynical about the realities of the human condition, I think I'm actually cautiously optimistic about the potential for social reform and police reform. Not just looking at this incident, but I think if you look more broadly, there has been a much more bipartisan recognition of the problems in both policing, specifically in criminal justice more broadly, that offer me quite a bit of hope that we may 
find some path together for improvement. And it does not mean that we will always be walking on the entirety of the path together. But I think the political right and the political left have much more consensus today than they did, say, 10 years ago as to identifying problems in criminal justice and policing and looking for solutions. I have to admit, though, I am rather skeptical that this particular use of force incident and the Capitol insurrection more generally is going to be a catalyst for consensus on police reform issues. And my skepticism comes from the observation that we're talking about a group of people who applaud or celebrate a physical invasion of the United States Capitol in an attempt to prevent the Electoral College from engaging in its lawful function. I don't think there's a lot of room for compromise when that's the prior, when that's the starting position. So although I do think there's reason to be cautiously optimistic about police reform and criminal justice reform generally, I don't think that we'll see a lot of consensus or common ground come out of the January 6th riot or the Ashley Babbitt shooting. I think on that note of cautious optimism, we will leave it. Seth, thank you very much, both for writing with your co-authors the excellent, excellent piece that I encourage everyone to read on Lawfare. We'll put it in the show notes and also for coming on to talk to me about this issue. Sure. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about this complicated area of law and policy. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Hamza Shittu of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.